Welcome to the Marion Road Christian Church Podcast. Marion Road exists to glorify God through worship, sharing the good news, making and developing disciples, and serving others. Like uh, a lot of kids, when I reached the age where my parents were willing to trust me to leave me at home by myself, it was pretty common that before they would leave, they would write out on, uh, on a sheet of paper a to-do list of things that needed to happen while they were gone and would leave it on the kitchen counter. And most of the time, those were uh, act, uh, uh, chores that were pretty simple, pretty easy to get done. They were things like empty the dishwasher, put your laundry away, take out the trash, and, and things like that. And I would like to stand up here this morning and tell you that I was always a diligent kid from a young age and that as soon as my parents left, the first thing I always did was all the things on that to-do list so that then I was free to enjoy whatever I wanted to enjoy for the rest of the free time that I had. And I would like to tell you that partly because it makes me look good and partly because that's the wise thing to do in that situation But it seems to be the case with all preteens and teenagers in my experience. When I was that age, long-term planning wasn't really a trait that I had really figured out yet. You know, present me wasn't really all that concerned about future me uh, at that point, and sometimes not now. And so (laughs) my parents' house uh, has has a long driveway, and a good portion that driveway goes through a cattle pasture and so as you get to the end of the driveway and cross from the pasture into the yard my parents have a concrete cattle guard to keep the cows in the place where cows are supposed to be and so uh, I'm not going to try to replicate it into a microphone right now because I don't think that would be good for any of us but but the sound of a car crossing over a concrete cattle guard has a very distinct sound and you can just trust me on that. And it's a loud enough sound that you can usually hear it even with you, if you're within the house at, at my parents, if there's not a whole lot of other noise going on. So it happened on more than one occasion where I would be at home by myself doing whatever it was that I wanted to be doing, and I would hear that sound. And in an instant, I would realize all the things that were on that to-do list that I had not yet completed, and I would be able to see into the future just a little bit and know what the next few minutes of my life were going to be like because of my actions. And in that moment, my priorities would shift to really, if we're being honest, where they should have been all along. And the reason why they should have been in that place all along is because of the authority that my parents held over their house. My parents were not less my parents, they were not less in charge of what was happening within their house just because they were not present. It's just that when they left, they they called me to be faithful in their absence. And instead, I had gotten distracted. I I had gone to whatever seemed more entertaining, more interesting in the moment, and as I did that, I missed the bigger picture of what mattered. And at their return, when, that's, when I heard that sound from the house, when their presence went from being hypothetical to real again, things changed. There were consequences for how I had lived in that meantime. Consequences that could have been much more positive if I had simply lived in light of what I knew was to come. Because when you know how the story is going to end, it at least should 
change how we experience the rest of the story. I'm sure anyone who has watched a movie more than one time has experienced this. Uh, Sometimes there's small differences. Sometimes it's a major one if you're watching something that has like a major twist at the end and all of a sudden uh, on a second watching you, you know that it's coming. But it makes a difference regardless. You might have movies coming to mind right now uh, that you're whispering to the people around you as I'm talking. And I guess I'll allow talking in church in this instance. Because on a second watch of a movie there are different things that stick out. There are some things that... Maybe we're confusing the first time you watched it, but the second time you know where everything's headed and so it makes more sense. Little details that maybe you didn't appreciate quite as much on the first watch that because you know how the story's going to conclude, you're able to appreciate more when you see them on a rewatch. And that's all because you know where the story is headed. And as followers of Jesus, we're called, we're able to view life through that same lens. The message of Jesus tells us how the story is going to wrap up. And knowing that, knowing where the story is headed, should inform how we live in the meantime. The fancy concept that theologians will throw around to describe this is this idea of the now and the not yet. This time between the first and the second coming of Jesus. Uh, We know that Jesus has come to the earth, that he died, that he rose from the dead, that he ascended into heaven, and that now he is presently reigning in heaven over all things, that this kingdom that he brought to the earth has been established right here and right now, and yet also we know that his kingdom is not yet fully here. We feel that each and every day as we live in a broken world, and we know that the story will one day end, that Christ will return, that he will complete his work, that he will fully establish his rule and reign over all things, and we know that we live in that time in between, between his first and second coming. We live in that tension between the now and the not yet. We know that Jesus reigns, and yet we're also fully aware that his reign is not yet fully instituted. And knowing all of that should ideally instill in us faithfulness. Because we know Jesus will one day return, and therefore we live each day in light of what we know will one day come to fulfillment. Knowing that the parents will at some point return from their errands and that the kid will be responsible for what they have or have not done in their absence should cause the kid to be faithful, to do what is expected of them. But it can tend to be the case, like a kid watching TV or playing video games instead of emptying the dishwasher, that the pull of life in the meantime is often towards a life that's focused on ourselves, a a life that pulls us away from the call of God, maybe aware of the fact that, yeah, sure, one day that king is going to return and one day I'll have to give an account but not doing anything in the meantime to live in light of what will one day be and when we don't live in light of the authority of the king in the meantime that means that we will one day be confronted by his rule and reign and we will face the consequences of how we have or have not responded to his authority 
I say all of that because today's parable we're going to be looking at in Luke chapter 19 calls us to that faithfulness in the meantime. As Luke tends to do, he's going to begin the passage we're looking at today with an introductory statement that makes it abundantly clear to us what is happening so that we don't miss, miss his point. And you might have noticed Luke doing that in chapter 18, which we looked at a few parables from over the past few weeks. Uh, my friend Luke and Isaac walked us through those two parables, and you might have noticed that at Luke 18.1, which my friend Luke was uh, preaching from, that it begins with Luke saying, and Jesus told this parable so that his followers would always pray and not give up. And what follows is this story that, that tells us that exact thing. And then in Luke 18.9, the passage that Isaac preached from a couple weeks ago, he, Luke says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on others, he told them this parable. And what follows is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, a story about someone who's confident in their own righteousness and looks down on others and is exposed as missing the heart of God. The same thing's happening in this passage today. The first verse is Luke 19, 11, and it says, while they, the, Jesus' followers, while they were listening to this, and we'll talk about what exactly that was here in a moment, uh, he, meaning Jesus, went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. This story comes immediately after Jesus' encounter with the tax collector Zacchaeus. You might know the story, you might know Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. We're not going to sing the whole song this morning, but you get the point. And Zacchaeus is a tax collector, and he wants to get near Jesus, and yet he can't because of the crowd. And so because he's short, because he's a tax collector and people don't like him, it seems for that reason, his only option is to climb up in a tree so that he can even just get a glimpse at Jesus as Jesus is passing through town. So he does that, and as Jesus makes his way by, he stops, and he invites himself over to Zacchaeus' home. And in that moment of encountering Jesus, Zacchaeus is transformed. He immediately becomes repentant and gracious and generous with his resources. Jesus proclaims after hearing everything Zacchaeus has said that salvation has come to his home. And all of this takes place in the city of Jericho which is significant because Jericho is the last major stop on your way to Jerusalem. And if we're reading through the entire Gospel of Luke, Jesus has been steadily making his way toward Jerusalem ever since chapter 9, verse 51. If you read through Luke, you notice right there, Luke makes a clear point of the fact that now Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. So over the last few chapters, he's been getting closer and closer, and now we're finally in Jericho, the last stop on the way, and being that close, this crowd traveling with him continues to grow. There is a, is a growing buzz in the air because Jesus is saying and doing a whole lot of things that the Messiah was supposed to do. This descendant of King David who was supposed to come, and now Jesus is getting close to Jerusalem. So there's anticipation in the air that, that once Jesus gets to Jerusalem, he makes this last little trek from Jericho to Jerusalem. He's going to ride into town. He's going to kick out the Romans who have been ruling the region for the past century. He's going to set up his kingdom at once. This kingdom of God he keeps talking about. There's hope. There's excitement. 
That's why there's crowds following Jesus. That's why there's so many people that Zacchaeus has to climb up in a tree to even be able to see Jesus. And sure, he offends some people by going into the home of a tax collector, but he's been doing that for chapters now. But, and there is still a massive crowd following him, hanging on his every word, salivating at the prospect that it won't be long now, and Jesus is going to strut into Jerusalem and kick the Romans out, take charge, and set up his kingdom at one. The only problem is that Jesus has a very different plan. Sure, he is going to keep making his way to Jerusalem, but once he gets there, things are going to look a little different. It's true, he will walk into Jerusalem and he will defeat the enemies of God's people while he is there. He will set up his kingdom while he is there, but it will not be at once. And the enemies he defeats will not be Rome. And the way he achieves this victory will look like failure as he goes to the cross. That's where this story is headed, and Jesus knows that, but everyone else listening to him is expecting something different. They want things on their terms, which really means that as excited as they are about following Jesus into Jerusalem, they're not actually living under his authority, they're living under their own authority expecting Jesus to do what they want. And while it is true that Jesus is a king, he will come to power in a way they do not expect. And when that happens, there will be a separation between those who truly live under his authority and those who do not. And so, to try to lay the groundwork for what that will look like, Jesus tells this story about someone who is crowned king and the reactions to that king's authority. And we find that some respond positively, and some do not. And yet everyone has to deal with the king's authority. So let's read the first little bit of this parable. Luke 19, verses 12 to 14. Jesus says, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then to return. So he called ten of his servants and gave them ten minus. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. But his subjects hated him. And sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be our king. That scenario right there probably seems strange, or at least it does to me. And yet it is at least similar to a situation that everyone listening to Jesus tell this story would have lived through. We know from history that more than once a ruler in this part of the world, more than once, it's one of the Herods that we read about through the Gospels and through Acts, they are crowned uh, with some sort of authority over this part of the world as a king or a ruler or something like that. And as they're appointed by the Roman Empire to this position, a component of that is that they are required to go, actually go to Rome so that they can be crowned by the Roman Emperor. And we know that more than once, as this was happening, the, the people living in this region aren't happy about it. And so they would send a delegation of people to go to Rome to try to appeal to the emperor as a sort of last-ditch effort to prevent this person, whoever it is that they don't like, from becoming king. I don't know if it's a perfect parallel, but maybe you could imagine that you worked for a company that, that had branches all over the nation. The headquarters were off in some uh, distant place on a coast or something like that. And one of your coworkers was about to be promoted to the head of that branch. 
and you knew for some reason or another because of your experience or knowledge of the job that the person who was about to be uh, appointed to this or about to be given this promotion just was not cut out for the work, that it was going to be a train wreck if this person got the job. And obviously there are all sorts of ways to communicate with people in different places that we have available today uh, that were not available in Jesus' day. But you could imagine that if, if all else failed, if your emails, your phone calls, your Zoom calls, whatever it might be, if none of those had worked, that maybe in a last-ditch effort you get on a red-eye flight and you fly to your company's headquarters so that you can be sitting outside your, your CEO's office when he comes into work in the morning to try to explain why this is a bad idea. That's a little bit like what Jesus is describing here. The Jewish historian Josephus, who lived a little after Jesus was on the earth, tells us about situations like this. If you're interested, you can look up those writings online. But the point is that Jesus is taking a situation his audience would have experienced to give them a preview of what's to come with his reign. So with all this going on, uh, this, this man who's about to be crowned king, uh, calls in ten of his servants and gives them money and gives them a charge of what to do while he is away. He gives each of them a mina, which is about the equivalent of a hundred days of work in Jesus' day. So if you could picture a third of an annual salary. He gives them that amount of money. He says, conduct business on my behalf while I am away, and he leaves. And then the servants are left with the question of what are they to do in the meantime? I mean, how do they live while their master, while the king is away? I mean, do they do what he told them to do? Do they assume he'll come back as king and therefore they need to prepare for what that is going to look like? Do they assume that, that maybe things aren't going to work out that way, that this uh, delegation that's going to protest against him is going to be successful and so sure he'll come back, but he's not going to be the king and he'll have his tail between his legs. Maybe we need to prepare for that. Do they hope, do they assume that he's not going to come back at all? And maybe then they'll just be free to do whatever they want? Well, the rest of the story deals with the king's return and what his servants have and have not done while he is gone. I'll read from verse 15 down to verse 27. Jesus is still speaking. He says, he was made king, however, and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what they had gained with it. The first one came and said, sir, your mina has earned ten more. Well done, my good servant, his master replied. Because you have been trustworthy in a very small matter, take charge of ten cities. The second came and said, sir, your mina has earned five more. His master answered, you take charge of five cities. Then another servant came and said, sir, here's your mina. I've kept it laid away in a piece of cloth. I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in and reap what you did not sow. His master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. You knew, did you, that I am a hard man taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Why then didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back I could have collected it with interest? Then he said to those standing by, take his mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. Sir, they replied, he already has ten. He replied, I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But as for the one who has nothing, even what they have will be taken away. 
But those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Despite the opposition, this man is crowned king and returns to take his throne. And when he does, there's a reckoning. And if you notice, we're told about ten servants at the beginning of this story. And yet, at the end of the story, we're only told about three of their, the servants' responses to the king. And I don't have a great answer for why that is. I can say, and you notice if you read through the parables, Jesus tends to group things in threes. There tend to be three things in his parables. And he tends to group things in this way, of a positive and a negative response, two positive, one negative, and things like that. So that's the best answer I can give as to why that is. But I think more broadly, I think all of the potential responses to the king's authority are summarized by these three servants. The first servant shows the king ten minus. The king's joyous, proclaiming that, uh, th- that this servant will serve in his new government with authority over ten cities because of his faithfulness with the mina while he was away. I have to imagine there's applause in the royal court. The second servant reports five minus. And again, the king is joyous. He puts this servant in charge over five cities because of his faithfulness while the king was away. And I have to imagine that again, there's applause in the royal court. And in the midst of this celebration, the third servant steps up. And I have to imagine that if you were standing there watching all of this take place, it might jump out to you right away that, In the midst of all the celebration and applause and all these things going on, this servant doesn't quite seem as excited as everyone else in the room. You might notice him start to fool in his pockets, reach around for something, and he pulls out something, you're not really sure what it is, and then you notice as he starts to unwrap it that it's the mina that the king gave him before he left. And the servant explains, he says, you know, I wasn't... I wasn't sure really what to do, so I wrapped it in this piece of cloth, really probably the best equivalent we have in our world today, is I wrapped it up in my handkerchief, because I didn't really know what else to do with it. And here you go, you can have it back. Which if you're thinking right now that, that wrapping something in a handkerchief doesn't seem like the most secure way to store something valuable, you're right. I mean, it would be a little bit like if someone gave you $10,000 in cash and told you to hold on to it, and you did that by just spreading it out on your kitchen counter so everyone who came over could see it. It's not exactly the most secure form of deposit that has ever been conducted. But that's how this servant has responded to the call of the king. And he gives the reason why there in verse 21. He said, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. You take out what you did not put in. And reap what you did not sow. And it's at this point that the parable takes a dark turn. I mean, this king flies off the handle. He takes the money away from the third servant. He gives it to the first servant who has more money than anyone else right now. He ignores the people that protest him doing this. And just for good measure, the parable ends with him saying, bring these people here who are my political enemies and put them to death so that I can watch it happen. And all this comes from the lips of Jesus. Yikes. What are we supposed to do with this? I mean, you might know that in the Gospel of Matthew, we get a very similar parable, except it's way less messy. It's it's kind of the gist of the same story. It's just all the parts that are weird about this parable get taken out. And so you might be thinking right now, well, why does Luke record this messier 
version? Why didn't he just use the one that Matthew uses? You might be thinking right now, couldn't we just jump over to Matthew and sweep this one under the rug? I mean, what are we supposed to do with the fact that this story comes from Jesus and apparently comes from Jesus because he's trying to tell us something about who God is and what his kingdom is all about? Well, to try to make sense of things, I think we have to look first at who this king is and then how the different servants respond to who the king is. Because this king is their master. The one who has all authority, the one that their allegiance is pledged to above all else, and that meant there's an obligation to live in light of his authority. And that call was the same, even if the master, the king, was absent, because there would come a point, even if they didn't know exactly when, when he would return and they would be responsible to him. And when that moment comes, each of them report on what they've done while the king was away and face the consequences of whether or not they have lived under his authority in his absence once he is present. And each of these servants, whether intentionally or not, gave a response to the reality that their master would return as king. The first two responded in that meantime with faithfulness, looking forward to the day, anticipating living in light of the day when their king would return and ask for an account of what they had done in the meantime and their faithfulness is rewarded. And the third servant is not faithful. And we're not told why. Maybe he was lazy. Maybe he just forgot. Maybe he truly was just so paralyzed with fear he didn't do anything. Maybe he was hoping that his master's opponents would be successful and maybe his master would be killed or wouldn't be crowned king while he was away and then he would be off the hook. Regardless of why, what we can at least say is that the third servant did not live as if the king would return or have any authority when he did. And they face the consequences of, his unfaith- of their unfaithfulness. Just as the first two servants face the consequences of their faithfulness. So if we just say that, I don't know, this king must have an anger issue or something, we're not really reading this parable well. We can't just say that the king isn't fair. Because everyone in this story experiences the natural result of their actions toward their king's authority in, their, in his absence. If we were to think through a hypothetical, think about what the king could have, or what the third servant could have done differently while the king was away, I mean, really, it comes down pretty simply to the fact that he could have done what the king told him to do, and things would have gone differently. The king's not setting unrealistic expectations and then losing it when those standards aren't reached. The king is just as happy, if you notice, with the second servant as he was with the first servant, which at least means that the king isn't just interested in profit margins. He's interested in faithfulness. If the third servant had said, you know, I tried the best I could, but some of these deals fell through, and so really all I have to report back is that I have just as much money as you left left me with, based on the rest of this parable, it seems that the king would have been fine with that. It's not that he didn't make a profit. It's that he wasn't faithful. It's that he rejected the king's authority. And that brought about this end. And that's what happens to the opponents of the king as well. This is less about the king getting revenge for people he doesn't like, and it's more about justice coming about. These enemies are in the same situation as the third servant who did nothing because they too did not live in light of the authority of the king. 
And we could split hairs and say, well, maybe they were worse off because they actively fought against the king coming to power and this servant just was kind of passive and just let things happen. But at the end of the day, they faced the same reality. They had not been faithful to the one who had the authority. And Jesus might describe things more graphically than we would, but that is the reality of this parable we can't escape. And the fact that the end of this parable is so graphic, is so jarring, should probably cause us to step out of the fictional world of this story and back into the real world. Because as messy as this parable might appear, it is calling us to deal with Jesus and his kingdom. Because many of the people listening to Jesus tell this story were interested in following him to the extent that they shared his agenda thinking his kingdom was one that they could come to in order to get what they wanted instead of just doing what Jesus said. They were like servants wrapping up their master's money in a handkerchief. They were interested in faithfulness on their terms, which is really just another way of saying they were interested in unfaithfulness. There were others in the crowd opposed to Jesus. Right after this story, Jesus is going to walk into Jerusalem. The religious elite are going to turn up the heat to get rid of him once and for all, like citizens traveling to a far-off land to try to prevent someone from becoming their king. And to both of those camps, Jesus tells this story to try to show that they're missing it. He has not come to be a king only if we ask him to reign. He's not come to be a king on our terms, he has come to be a king full stop. And rejection of or apathy towards his reign will not do. We've been called to respond with faithfulness to our king and are promised joy as we participate in his reign, and yet we are warned of tragedy if we do not. And this story holds the same weight for us today as it did for this crowd listening to Jesus. Jesus is king, just as much right now as he has ever been. He is king over all creation. He is king in the good times and bad. He is king even if we'd like to think we'd, we would make a better king ourselves. He's king of all. He's king regardless of our input. He is far wiser. He understands far more than we ever could. His reign was established when he died on the cross, rose from the dead, and ascended into heaven, defeating the enemies of sin and death for all time. And he has promised that one day he will return to fully establish his reign. And in the meantime, he has called us to be faithful. He has called us to participate in his rule and reign. He has called us to look forward to the day when his reign will come fully, and in the meantime, he calls us to faithfulness. And we get a glimpse of what that will look like when we read Revelation 19. John uses the imagery in that passage to describe the return of Jesus, and he is a conquering king. John says he wears many crowns. He has so much authority, you can't contain it in one crown. Crown, So he's got all these crowns balanced on his head, apparently, and he's riding a white horse, and he comes, and he defeats any and all of his enemies for all time. As we keep reading, when his enemies try to rise up, there isn't even a fight, because their authority is nothing compared to his. And to those who have been faithful to him, that image of their king riding in on a white horse is about the most comforting image you could imagine. 
and to those who have rejected him, to those who have fought against his reign, him showing up as king of all is a terrifying image. But it's the way the story ends. And we have been called to live in light of that ending in the meantime. Because the story Jesus tells in Luke 19 is not just a fictional story. It is how the story that we are a part of will end. And when that happens, the only thing that will matter about you, me, or anyone else who has ever taken a breath on this earth will be whether or not we have been faithful to the king while he was away. Everything hinges around that. And so, we live in the meantime as his people living in the present with an eye towards the future. Because faithfulness to Jesus will be the only thing that matters at the end of the story. The entire reason of his coming to earth was that we might be able to go home, home to dwell with our God as we were created to live. That is the life that Jesus is calling to, and that life starts now as we look forward to the day when he will return and fully take his throne, rewarding his people for their faithfulness to him in his absence as we dwell with him in eternity. And so this story asks us how we will respond. There's an urgency to this text. And yet I want to make sure that we place that urgency in the right place so that we actually understand what Jesus is saying. The urgency of this text is not that we would all think, boy, I better shape up because God is, will take the first excuse he has to throw me into hell. The urgency of this text is God is in charge. And I've been created to live under his rule. And it would be a tragedy to go anywhere else. Whoever you are, whatever you believe about God or the world, that is what the message of Jesus tells us about how we have been called to live. And this place and these people are a safe place to figure out what faithfulness in the present in light of the future looks like. So if you've never followed Jesus, if you've followed him in the past, but you're not so sure anymore. If you would say you're following him right now, but you're not sure what the next step looks like, if you have questions, if you have any thoughts at all, the challenge of Jesus in this passage is to come to terms with who he is and who he claims to be. And in light of that, ask ourselves if we are being faithful in the present, if we are living now in light of the not yet, in light of the fact that he will one day return. If we're living in the story right now in light of how the story will end. So don't leave this building today without considering whether or not you have dealt with Jesus, whether that's by yourself before the service ends this morning, whether that is after the service ends, today to just find someone, me or Isaac or anyone else, just to talk and to pray with, because Jesus is king of all, and he wants you to experience life as you were created to live it in his kingdom. So come near to him in the meantime, that you might have life now and in the future. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. That when we had rebelled, we had run away, you did not leave us 
to the faith that we deserved because of our sin against you. But that you came, you sent your son to make reconciliation. To make us new. To bring us out of death and into life, out of darkness and into light, so that we might walk with you now and forever. So Father, for each and every one of us right now, we simply ask that you would give us wisdom and faith for how to respond. That we would live in light of who you are in every facet of our lives, that we would wake up each day looking forward to that day when our King will return and we will dwell with him forever. And help us be faithful in the meantime as we see that day approaching. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. We hope that you were encouraged and challenged by this message given by our own senior pastor, Monty French.